they are happy to put X percent of their monthly income toward food. And it's at a higher value than what we would have here. Especially in the Bay Area right now, a lot of our income is going toward housing, not toward food. You know, but I feel like we need to, as a culture, kind of shift our thinking around the value that should be placed behind food. That's you know, Stephanie Oslego, private chef and project manager for Sustainable Solano. Today, she provides insights on her history with food advocacy, her work with the organization, and ways that you can get involved. As you may know, food is a lot more complicated than many people think. Where does our Solano food come from? And from how far? Where does Solano produce even go? There are a few things equitable about our food system, which is why I think you'll be grateful that everyone at Sustainable Solano is working to solve the big problems in order to make it better for Solano residents everywhere. Get ready for a fun and full conversation with Stephanie O. Here we go. Ready to get the city fit? SoFit City is a city challenge and festival to inspire fitness across the nation. Run this town with us or pledge to run yours on SoFit City Day. For more information, go to SoFitCity.com forward slash pledge. SoFit City, we run this town. Are you ready? You are now listening to the Solano Fit Podcast. Featuring health and fitness to change your life and inspiration to live your best. Here's your host, Hans O. Johnson. Welcome, welcome everyone to Season 2, Solano Fit and Inspiration to Live Your Best. Today I'm with Stephanie Oslegel, Project Manager for Sustainable Solano, where she provides oversight for operational plans and other programs. Stephanie is not just a healthy food advocate fighting for food justice, but she's also a first-class chef and caterer with her own business, Hot Dish Inc. Today we are talking about the macro system of food in Solano, its complexities, and a bit more. Stephanie O, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Stephanie Oh, before we begin, we like to start the show with a favorite little game. We call it the seven favorite things in 10 seconds. Okay. I hope I have those favorite things. Are you ready? Uh, yeah. Here we go. Favorite color? Purple. Favorite song? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> favorite book? Um, becoming a Chef. Favorite movie? Mmm. Jeez. I can't. I have no clue. I haven't seen a movie since I had kids. Favorite hobby? Uh, hobby. Let's go with yoga. Favorite vegetable? Oh, artichokes. And favorite dish to make? That's tough. Because I'm a chef. <laughs> um, how about just right now, this month? Maybe yes. the favorite dish is... Um, a warm cabbage Indian salad. A warm cabbage Indian salad? Yeah, it's an Indian warm cabbage salad. My friend Sushma. So now tell me about the not seeing a movie since time before time. <laughs> right. The last movie I did see was that Bohemian Rhapsody one, which oh. won some awards. Yeah. So that was really fun because it had a lot of really cool music um, and background on Queen. So that was that was cool, but literally, I I just I don't see them very often, other than kids movies. So I don't know if I want to count the Minions as my favorite. Right or Frozen. <laughs> I go see it with the five and nine year old boys that I have, but you know, is it a favorite? Right. Not. Right. Really. <laughs> it doesn't get. Yeah, right, right. It doesn't get to that level of favorite. It does. Stephanie, oh, I know that you work with Sustainable Solano, but tell us how it all started. Okay, so I grew up in Nebraska, and my dad was a farmer. And that means there was a lot of corn and soybeans going on. I have memories of 
walking through soybean fields, cutting down weeds. <laughs> this was my summer job, right? Work ethic. You know, yeah, helping, you know, hand tools to dad or my uncle or whoever because they're fixing a tractor or whatever they're doing. And my grandfather was also a really amazing gardener. He has a, he had a backyard garden and so random produce and vegetables would just show up in the fridge all summer long. I, I kind of learned what these things were as a young child. I didn't necessarily learn how to cook them, but I knew what they were. You know, the zucchinis, the eggplants, the squashes, the melons, all of that stuff. But if you would have asked me when I was about 20 something, if I was going to be a chef one day, I would have probably laughed in your face and said, you're crazy, <laughs> you know, because that just wasn't my plan at the time. I ended up working in the nonprofit arts world for a while, doing some marketing, some grant writing, some administration stuff. Then for a, a small for-profit who did artwork packages for the hospitality industry. Mm. So that kind of got me back into restaurants, hotel work, because we were finding art to put up on the walls of you know a chart house restaurant or a hotel chain or whatever the situation was. And my boss, Liz Goldberg, was a huge foodie. We would go on installations to put up said artwork, and she would say, well, you know, we're going to Portland, Oregon. We got to go check out that cheese place over there, or we have to go taste that wine over there, you know? And so I didn't really realize it, but she was kind of bringing me back to this awareness of food, you know, even though we weren't really focusing on the food in the restaurants, we were focusing on the decor and the artwork and working with architects and interior designers. But you know, I was like, oh yeah, I should, uh, that's, that is good cheese, you know, or that is kind of a, a cool dish at that restaurant because we would end up eating at these places. So yeah. she kind of, um, without knowing it, reawakened interest in food. Then September 11th happened and people kind of stopped rehabbing and stopped, everything stopped. And by this point, she had moved to New York. I was in Chicago running our little Chicago office. And there just came a point when I think I was sort of ready to move on to something else. And at the same time, she really wasn't able to pay me full time anymore for this job. And so I moved on and I had some spare time on my hands because now I'm like between jobs. And all I really wanted to do was go to the grocery store and browse. Really? Look around. I'm going to go to Whole Foods or whatever little market was in Chicago and I'm going to go just check out the produce. I'm going to go look around. And this was, you know, kind of at the time when real creativity and a lot of like culinary schools were just starting to like boom, you know, mm -hmm. food TV had just gotten established. Um, I asked the guy at the culinary school I went to, I said, you know, here at your enrollment's really like hopping, like what's the cause of that? And he, his response was, you know, food TV. <laughs> so, yeah. okay, you know, this is becoming a public, you know, more of a, in the public's eye. It's, it's a, an awareness thing. In vogue, so to speak. Exactly. I decided to apply to culinary school, kind of going back toward the direction of food. Um, I felt very much like this is what I need to be doing at this point in time. So, you know, and at the beginning I thought, okay, I want to do these cooking class dinner parties. You know, I want to do events. I taught a gazillion cooking classes. There were a couple of small retail shops starting up and they would have, you know, it's kind of the idea of a Williams-Sonoma retail in front and then in the back they would have a high-end, you know, kitchen setup where you could, people could take classes. So it was also, you know, kind of in vogue too. I started doing a little bit of catering and then decided I really liked catering and that's what I did for about eight or nine years in Chicago was catering jobs. And then in 2011, my husband had a job opportunity out in California 
I kind of kicked and screamed for a little while, but <laughs> eventually <laughs> we moved. When I got out here, I couldn't find a reasonably priced kitchen anywhere to rent. When I was in Chicago, I used a place called Kitchen Chicago. The owner was awesome. She had this arrangement where you could just rent by the hour as needed. I could not find that in Solano County in California. Mm -hmm. you, you know, I saw some things in San Francisco that was a little far. You know, I don't want to have to drive an hour or more through traffic just to be able to prep for a few hours and bring all the food back. Yeah, the commute can be a killer. Yeah, it didn't make sense. Meanwhile, you know, I'm learning a little bit more. Once I get out here, I'm learning more about local food. I'm seeing that there's, you know, Napa and Sonoma and just kind of how those different areas work with food and kind of the, just what the, the community perception, you know, or, or not lack thereof. And so while all this is kind of happening, I come across Sustainable Solano, formerly Benicia Community Gardens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine who does popsicles, Kim Harris, she has Ferriel Ice Pops. Cool. Yeah, she had texted me and said, hey, there's somebody who's organizing a meeting about a kitchen. I think you should come because we both were in the same predicament of we want to make food or some product, but where do we do it? You know, there just doesn't seem to be any place around here. So I went to the meeting and met Elena Carolina, who's the executive director of Sustainable Solano. And we kind of hit it off. We started tossing around the idea of writing some grants for a couple different projects. The more we talked, the more we got into this idea of what is a local food system? Does it exist in Solano County? Huh. We are not sure that it does. How do we make it exist? You know, what's the vision behind that? And so we put together a huge grant proposal for the USDA. It was their local food grant track, LFPP for short. And the purpose of this LFPP grant in the eyes of the USDA was to increase access to and consumption of local food. Our original idea was to establish these community food centers in all seven cities in Solano County, but we didn't know if that was feasible. So the quote unquote deliverables of the grant would be to do the feasibility study, and then if it was feasible, we would create a business plan for eventual implementation down the road. So that's basically what I've been really focusing on since about October of 2017. Wow. So that's like the big, long, <laughs> the big long story of food and how, kind of how I got here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so amazing how whatever kind of art influences that you were getting back on the East Coast and this mm -hmm. how it kind of brought you back toward the creativity around food and the preparation of food. I thought that was very interesting. It's as if there were seeds yes. of chefdom in you, in you from an early right. age and you kind of had a callback to it. Right, right. It's kind of like I'm going full circle because now I'm interacting with farmers who are the people who I, I grew up around farmers. I mean, that's all there was. The town I grew up in was a thousand people huh. in rural Nebraska. What city was that? City. It was called Tilden, like Tilden Park. It's in the northeast corner of Nebraska. And so it wasn't complete. I mean, a lot of it is pretty flat, but there was a river that ran close by to the town. So there were a few little small hills. Um, I grew up with both sets of grandparents were in that little town. And so I watched my, wow. like the grandfather who had the great garden. Um, I watched my grandmother utilize those vegetables where she would be canning and preserving. And I'm sure it was the mentality since they lived during the depression. It was, how are we going to 
maintain this stuff through the winter, which is long and cold and barren. And so um, I got a taste of that as well, of, you know, how do you work with this food so that you can have nutrients during a season when there's just nothing available, really? Yeah, that sounds like classic living. <laughs> yeah. You know, total classic living with all with right. both sets of grandparents in the same town nearby right. and you just watching generations of healthy habits. Right. Yeah. And my mom, we had a garden too. I remember we had a whole row of rhubarb. And so I remember like people coming over and trading whatever they had for my mom's rhubarb. <laughs> I mean, and, and not to get too far off track, but how did the whole farmer, I mean, I, I, there's always been, I don't know too much specifically about just what happened to farmers, but yeah. farmers have been under siege. I mean, did that affect you guys in Nebraska? Yeah, there were definitely issues. I remember my dad and my uncle having to go negotiate with banks like in Omaha or Lincoln, which is like a two or three hour drive from our house, you know, like on New Year's Eve or something, or, you know, it was like at the end of the tail end of the year. And they were like, Oh my gosh, we have to do something, you know, and figure out how to work with these people so that we don't lose our land. And um, yeah, that was very much a part of it. I mean, my, my mom was really, she was a teacher and she was probably more of the breadwinner than my dad was doing the farming operations. You know, ironically, once he got toward the end of his life, which was unfortunately like in his 60s, that's when all of a sudden there was like this boom in corn and, mm -hmm, <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. but all those farms are still there in the Midwest and it's all Monsanto stuff. Yep. Is not the kind of farming that I would choose to do. Right. So there is this kind of tension also in my life where there's this past that I grew up with. At the time, I'm not sure if anybody really knew that it was good, bad, or ugly. Not that there was brainwashing going on, but I think there was just a, a lack of understanding of other options. Given where I am now and knowing what I know and seeing what I've seen and, you know, different methods and, yeah, just different ways of farming that happens here in California and now in other places around the country, I sort of feel like at some point I'm, I may have to go back and talk to people in the Midwest about alternatives. <laughs> You know? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where throughout history, there's always been some version of the slick business guy with the slick tongue who comes in with the shiny watch and who can kind of convince mm -hmm. the locals about a new promise, guaranteeing a better than best situation and use this seed or use this new technology. And sometimes it doesn't pan out the way that right. the salesperson claims it to come out. Exactly. And then you get hooked on it and you get used to it. And then before you know it, it's like now you can't live without it. Right. You know, you're making money. Things are operating. You know, you have a system. Yeah, I was talking to the agricultural, the person at the Solano County Department of Ag commissioner, and we were discussing whether or not farmers were risk averse or, <laughs> or not. And she said, you know, I don't think they're risk averse because they take risks every other month, basically. You plant something and hope that it's going to turn out and some pests. I mean, that is not being risk averse. It's more about being change averse, I think. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, that I, I understand because you get into your rhythm and, you know, but then you realize, oh my gosh, my system is not sustainable or, you know, it may be functioning for the short term, but is it going to function for the long term? Eh, probably not. And so to change that would require a really big movement, and a lot of really brave people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I guess, I guess if anything, it's just Maybe it's just the evolution of humanity, our technologies, our food systems, and all of our systems, just that essentially the system becomes too heavy for 
the benefit it's provided in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some sort of breakdown at some level. And, and in our case, yeah. you know, we're now we're realizing that everything has corn in it. <laughs> you know, everything right. has some level of fructose, you know, syrup yeah. or something or some derivative. Yeah. And it's really not helping. So how do you change the system? <clears throat> you know, what we basically found was there is a lot of agriculture in Solano County. The majority of it is exported. It's, it's big ag. Think like almonds going to China. Also, a lot of, say, tomatoes produced in this county, but then they leave the county to get processed. So into like, say, canned tomatoes or Campbell's soup uses a lot of this stuff. So, so, you know, when we started the project for this local food system, um, the USDA project, we were defining local as within Solano County, just to start, because we needed something to just, you know, go. Yeah, we needed a boundary to begin with. And we found that there is a lot of of larger agricultural producers out there who do export, but there are also probably about 50 smaller farmers who really do want to connect with their own communities. They want to grow food for the people around them. And so those are the people that we are hoping to start, you know, relationships with, you know, in an effort to begin some kind of a local food system. Got it. There's also... And is that because Big Ag is a little too impenetrable? Is that what we're getting at? Well, they have big contracts. So financially, they're set. Um, the money speaking. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we're not going to talk to them, though, because we are interested to know if they would like to keep 1%, 5%, whatever in the county as part of this system. And some of them are. There's, there are some nut growers farther in the end of the county who are very interested in sustainability. They're very interested in, you know, helping these local systems. So it's really kind of a question of finding the right people who want to be a part of this and, and help it along, I would say. Yeah. But what we found is like some of the smaller guys are not necessarily producing at capacity because they don't have a strong market. And... Meanwhile, a lot of the general public has no idea that there's even smaller farmers around in the county who could provide food. So there's kind of a weak supply and there's a weak demand. Um, Now, on the other hand, I should say weak demand in terms of end consumer. There's not necessarily a weak demand when we look at institutional customer possibilities. So we are working on right now is a little bit of um, looking into pairing some of these farmers with cafeterias and hospitals. Um, There's an early childhood development center, I think, who has, you know, they would be sourcing very regularly um, produce to use for their kids. So we're looking into starting really small and really simple where we swap out one or two seasonal items per month that these kitchens would use. So if there's asparagus available from some, you know, within our small cluster of farmers, and we're just going to say, oh, we're just going to work with like maybe three or four farmers, you know, if they have enough asparagus to provide to a larger institution, an institutional kitchen, then we'll have them swap out that one item for a month. And then meanwhile, our job would be to promote that farm, that product, Mm with some kind of visibility in the hospital cafeteria or, you know, if the childhood development place, um, you know, it'd be just somehow getting that in front of the parents or the caregivers or whoever is, is in charge of those kids. 
that's kind of what the feasibility study showed. We had really great partners at UC Davis who led the feasibility study. That was one of the major conclusions was that, you know, to do a project that does food to end consumer, like the idea of these community food centers, it's not feasible right now. The, the public needs more education and awareness. But meanwhile, the farmers need to kind of build with a different kind of consumer who has more consistent demand. So it sounds like you're starting a relationship and creating a little bit of supply so that the demand can increase over time and that the two of them can kind of grow together. Yeah, it's, we're kind of thinking of it as like building infrastructure for the farmers. Yeah. With that educational marketing component, just to make, sure, to make more of us aware that these healthier, more local options are available. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, once you start talking about local, then you've got the environment, yeah. you know, elements involved where you're reducing food miles, you know, but the bottleneck in all of these systems, which I've found kind of through the various research is how is there an opportunity for workforce development somehow with a population, not sure who, is it students, um, whoever, you know, is there a way to involve them in the distribution part of it and, and develop that workforce so that the farmers can get their food from the farm to the customer? Because the farmers don't have the time. You know, we're finding that farmers markets are not the greatest, um, at least for the smaller farmers, it's not a money-making venture for them. It's more of a PR <laughs> you know, exercise. Mm-hmm. And the chefs don't have, I mean, being a chef, I understand how they operate in the kitchen. They don't have time to go run around chasing food either. You just kind of want to make the call, send the email and get it delivered. So there's this middle space. The food bank really just deals with donated foods. I don't think there's, in terms of liability, I don't think there's a space in that kind of model for transporting more food that's being purchased between two entities. You know, I've been told by somebody at the food bank that she really believed there was space in the the current distribution models for a smaller group or entity or whatever to get that food from point A to point B. So this is fascinating that we can get food to China, but we can't get it next door. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, we can put it on a container ship and get get it across. You know, I mean, and that's the economy of scale. Yes. So. All right, I'm going to tangent a little bit. The Sustainable Solano team has been going to Santa Cruz for this discussion lecture series called The Next Economy. With this next economy idea and designing it, you know, in order to have these smaller systems, oftentimes the price ends up being higher. Right. And then the people who need it the most can't afford it. There was a term for this called the price parity paradox you know, ideas of like, well, how do you solve the price parity paradox? We want to give the farmers a fair price, yet you want to make it accessible to everyone. And how do you do that? It's, it's a crazy, complex issue with food, because on one hand, I feel like a lot of us have been trained to think that we should have either cheap or free food. Hmm. The, the value that's placed behind food, I think, has changed or or in this country it's think about it in a different way you know i think if you go to some countries in europe probably france would be one of them you know they they are happy to put x percent of their monthly income toward food and it's at a higher value than what we would have here especially in the bay area right now a lot of our income is going toward housing not toward food you know, but I feel like we need to, as a culture, kind of shift our thinking around the value that should be placed behind food. 
you know, if you're spending that money up front and on really good quality, nutrient dense fruits and vegetables, grains, you know, even high quality meats that are raised sustainably and are part of an ecosystem on a farm, you know, you're not going to be paying those healthcare costs down the road than if you're, you know, and you understand how this this works, you know, you invest in your health now. You're not paying for it later. Part but of it's, it's just like, oh God, this is so big. <laughs> it's massive and it's kind of messed up. Yeah. yeah. And how do we fix it? But I think yeah. you just, you have to start small. And I think right now, you know, we are at Sustainable Solano. We're trying to start small. We're trying to start local. I mean, we have to start somewhere. So we're starting with our own communities mm-hmm. and it's just, you take it one group at a time. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of grappling right now. Do we are going to start with the institutional stuff. I mean, at this point, I'm not even sure I can get into because I, I don't know enough about it. There's then the whole food assistance economy that's part of this with the CalFresh and the market match and all of that. And how does that fit into the puzzle? And I'm still learning about it. So I don't. I know that it sort of operates as its own system in a way. And the question is, how do you integrate that then with right. the larger food system on a local level? So many mouths to feed. There's, there's a lot of now, yeah. In more ways than one. And how do we do it? So, yeah. But, um, well, let me, let me ask you this, Steph. So yeah. does Sustainable Salon have any sort of idea of what percentage of the farmers that are growing here are exporting out? Um, I know that Solano County exports to 44 different countries. Wow. A lot of it is going to various Asian countries. Um, some goes to the Middle East. There's a little bit of Europe, but not a ton. I don't know what percentage of farmers. It would be in the Solano County Ag Department's um, crop report, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that would give, it gives kind of an overview of what's grown here, how much is exported, percentages. It's just a lot of crop data, you know, mostly like what's grown, yeah, where, what is it used for, et cetera. Is this kind of a dirty secret or is this something that Sustainable Solano uncovered? No, I, I think, I don't think it's a secret. I think it is what it is. I mean, I think you have larger producers, you know, larger farmers who have found their niche. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and of course, it also kind of depends on your growing region. And even within Solano County, there's a lot of variation in soil and climate. And, you know, the water sources for this county, though, are like top notch. So if we can figure out how to do, you know, food, I mean, the the Bay Area, of all the nine counties in the Bay Area, I think Solano is blessed with the best water source and just the water system. There was some kind of an irrigation system with channels and different things that were put in, um, which has served everyone quite well. So I think a lot of counties wish they had (laughs) the amount of water that we have. I got an idea, Steph. Yeah. Food needs to become to Solano what wine is to Napa. It's a perfect pairing. Right. Somehow right. we have to become like the foodie capital of California. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, think, yeah. I think we can do it. How Are you with it? me? I know. Yeah. There, there is wine grown here too. I mean, yeah. So Student Valley has really come a long way. I mean, they've, they've really, um, that's a kind of a good example of how, you know, they've taken a little region and really raised awareness of it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pleasance Valley is another little agricultural region. They are more ag-based and not as much wine-based, um, but they're really trying hard to raise awareness and we're promoting them as much as we can. But anyhow, you know, back to your question about, you know, what's grown and where and all of that. 
just, I think it just kind of depends on, are you in a more warm area up north toward Davis, you know? And, you know, the other issue with Solano County is that we're a little bit of a bedroom community, right? There's a lot of commuters. There people going to SAC to San Francisco, Walnut mm-hmm. Creek, yeah, right. everywhere. You're going to Sacramento, you're just passing through. Or you leave to go to work and then you come home. And you're, by the time you get back home, you're too tired to cook <laughs> mm-hmm. or garden or whatever it is you're doing. So that's part of it, too, is making it easy for people, which was kind of our original thought, you know, with this community food center idea, because it would have a kitchen where prepared food to be made. It would have a drop off and pickup location for, say, CSA boxes and other farm products. It would have a little educational space for talks, lectures, films, whatnot. Right now, at this point in time, it's just not a viable business idea. You know, it may be five years from now, it will be, but right now it's not going to fly. Right now, we're developing more of a strategic plan instead of a business plan in terms of like what to do first, second, and third. And I would say the top two big buckets to fill are community and public awareness and education and helping the farmers build some infrastructure so that they can move from current state to institutional sales to eventually um, direct to consumer down the road. But describe to the audience what happens when the vision for sustainable Solano comes to fruition, comes to fruition. Yeah. And we're eating from the food that is being made next door. What, what do we expect to happen? Okay. I'll give you kind of the mission of the local food program. It's we would love to create an environmentally sustainable, economically viable, and socially just food system in in the county, or maybe even in the region. It's kind of those three components. You've got environment, you've got the economics, and then you've got the social part. Yeah. It's hard to get all three of those things to jive. Yeah, that sounds like Utopia USA. Yeah, Utopia USA. But But noble, yes, absolutely. So if all of that were happening locally, you would have... And if the farmers were operating, I should say, if they were operating sustainably and really enriching their soil. So there's a couple of different things in the environmental area that we could talk about. The one is, of course, you are shortening food miles, not buying grapes flown in from Chile, for example, you know, and promoting those businesses in way far away places. Right. So there's a cost there. Yeah. So you're having an impact on just the environment costs, I should say, of ag. Also, if you are sourcing local from a diverse farmer who's growing lots of different things and not just corn grown by, you know, the, the big monocrop farmers, then there is a greater chance that I'm supporting healthier soil, which also counteracts oh. the carbon in the atmosphere. It's about biochar, which is a whole other topic, which we don't have time to get into right now, but the more nutrient dense and rich your soil is, which you can get by proper crop rotation, having some animals around, you know, mm-hmm. diversifying your crops, the more nutrient dense that soil and, and the more microbes that are in there will help to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. It's called carbon farming, which, and now it's kind of a thing, you know? It's oh, out, wow. Yeah. My goodness. Right. The, hmm. Yeah, and then I immediately think how economically viable is it to grow a lot of stuff as opposed to doing one thing well? Uh, right. Well, you need to have the right kind of customer. 
Yeah. yeah, that's true. Growing one thing well. Now, that's not to say you can't grow a lot of one thing. You just need to put other things maybe in between the rows or you need to put some hedgerows in. Oh, you got to figure out a way to like diversify a little bit. Like instead of having, um, I know that some orchard, some um, fruit growers do this. You know, they've got their peach trees, mm-hmm. but in between the peaches, they're putting other things. Maybe some Got it. Okay. Vegetables. So it's some intention. You're talking about some intention. There's yeah, some, some intention going on. And along the perimeter, they've got certain kinds of plants that will attract, you know, bees and deter insects that, you know, they don't want to invade their main crop, for example. So mm-hmm. it's, it's that kind of thing. It's really kind of diversifying, not so much, you know, oh, I'm just going to have two rows of tomatoes and two rows of eggplant. And, you know, you're creating an ecosystem. Yeah. Plants and animals, basically. Pure science. Yeah. Pure science for a better world, man, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the environment part. Yeah. Plus, you know, you're getting healthier food. I mean, if you have nutrient-dense soil, you're getting more vitamins and minerals in those vegetables and fruits that you want to get into your body. So... Yeah, I think there's something... I think everyone understands at a very basic level that there's something just inherently good about supporting the businesses where you live. Right, right. Just calling back to the story that you had in terms of, you know, growing up on the farm and watching when kids don't know where the food Mm -hmm. comes from and Mm -hmm. they think, oh, it's the grocery store down the street, if there's a grocery store down the street, right? There's that issue too. Exactly. Um, You know, we've lost something really kind of essential to our humanity and what makes a, a healthy and thriving community. Hey there, listeners. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for listening to our young podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please share the episodes with friends or family that may benefit from any of the insights shared. You can also help by leaving us a review on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. The whole idea behind Solano Fit is to provide you with the relevant and local inspiration to help you live your best. Share with us how we're doing. Also, if you're a new runner, our SoFit to SoFit 5K training podcast is currently underway. It's the S2S 5K. It's eight weeks of fun, short messages to keep you focused and motivated. Just log in at solanofit.com, then check your email folders for the eight-week plan. And special thanks to our sponsor, Kaiser Permanente, and all the employees around the county following along. Change and learning something new requires energy, and the S2S 5K is meant to fuel your mental and emotional battery. We're currently working on other partnerships to support you even further, so stay tuned for that. For other news, events, or updates, follow us on IG at SolanoFit707, and then make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you get the notifications each time a new episode is released. Okay, that's it for now. Let's get back to the show. So our research showed that Solano County as a whole probably spends around $1 billion annually on food purchases. That's the whole shebang. That's restaurants, that's grocery stores, that's the corner store, that's all of it. That's fast food, everything from... Oh, yeah, any kind of food. This is a broad, this is kind of a big you know, generalization, but it's around a billion dollars that we're spending. So if we were to substitute out even like 1% of that money on and replace it with local, that would be huge amounts of money kept yeah. in the local economy. And so that's kind of where the economic part of it fits in. Because then, of course, you've got, you know, these multiplier effects that economists, which I am not, <laughs> can talk about in more detail. But, you know, and, and I think about 
since you brought up, you know, me growing up in the farm, you know, I think about, okay, there really was a community and it still operates today. You know, my dad had his farm. He bought his farm implements from the guy in the town down the street. The, his insurance guy was local. There was a local rep for the seeds that he bought. Um, he actually used to work at the local fertilizer place wow. until he started, you know, getting into his own farming. His so, own farm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just, yeah, you start to work with, you know, the people around you. And like you say, now that there kind of is this, I don't know if it's a trend. I hope it's not just a trend. I hope it's an understanding of the value of, of buying local and keeping things local. You know, then you really do start to build something up as a community together, right? It's, it's not just me with my business and I'm sourcing from, you know, India or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you want to try to work with what's in your immediate environment. So, yeah. 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 This is such a big topic. You know, I mean, I mean, and here's the thing, you know, it's almost silly to say, who would have thunk that food's so important? Uh, no, actually, it's as important as water, right. uh, air, yeah. right? It's literally life. It's li- right. It's, it's literally, like, it's potentially the most important. Right, right. My goodness. But no, I think you spoke really well about the whole idea about the quality of food we eat and the idea that yeah. somehow, somewhere along the line, we got to get really, we began to take for granted. Mm-hmm our food sources and we no longer care where it comes from mm-hmm. and maybe we only want it to be red and shiny and delicious looking. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it came 3000 right. miles and cheap and cheap yeah. and cheap. And the, yeah. there's the big word cheap. And so I, I think of the quality of it. And then I think of this other thing that you brought up, it comes up so often in fitness too, this idea of easy mm-hmm. and we're always trying to make things easy and easy, easy, easy. And gosh, mm-hmm. It's almost like there's some sort of relationship between the quality and the ease we expect to have in getting quality. It's like there's some yeah. sort of disconnect. Like, can you have quality easily, right? Can I change my body easily? Can I change anything easily? Can I have quality food made well easily? Mm-hmm. You know, what does easy mean in a world where, where we're getting more and more used to instant Right. Instant. Yeah. And, you know, it, I think it boils down to like, it's either time or money. Yeah. Let's think about pre-washed bagged spinach, for example. You know, when I get the spinach in my CSA box, it's not washed. You know, it's picked. It's, it depends on what time of the year it is, but it's, um, it might have some stems on it. It may not. It's in a bag, but I still have to wash it, which takes five minutes, you know, slosh it in a big bowl of water, run it through the salad spinner. Is it healthier spinach? Yeah, yeah. probably. Cause it was picked two days ago and I'm right. now washing it and eating it. <laughs> or if I don't have time to eat it that night, does it last longer in the fridge? Uh, yep, it does. But yeah, it's that idea of, well, okay, do I pay more to have somebody else wash it for me? And then Mm -hmm. put it in a plastic clamshell or, you know, is it better just to get it and have me spend a little bit of time, but I'm getting a fresher product and it's probably more nutrient dense because it hasn't been on a shelf or in a truck or wherever it's been, you know, it's, it's the service behind that food prep, which we might need to start redefining in our own heads in order Mm -hmm. to, and then decide, well, how is that going to work for me? Yeah, because then it affects everything else, right? And we're just talking about people who actually still prepare their food and right. or even eat with the family, which is even under siege as well. Right, yeah. It, there, There is this whole 
idea of, um, well, first I would say it starts with your sense of place too, which kind of connects back to my comment about how we're all a bunch of commuters in this county. Right. You know, unlike Napa and Sonoma, where you really have that sense of place and pride and, and understanding of like, okay, this is where I come from and this is what that means. Right. I don't think we've developed that identity in Solano, especially in the context of food. But if we could, then yes, I think you might start to have more of that value of, you know, okay, this is where I live. This is where I come from. And you know what? My food also comes from this place. And I have a lot of pride that I can just, you know, get that. I can source that food from down the road, have it as part of my, my dinner experience with my family. Yeah. It's that eat and go in that commuter yeah. town. And so it's you sleep here. And then you're, you're back on the 80. Right. <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah. Um, and then, gosh, what kind of living is that? Right, right. Now we got to do so much better. And it sounds like Sustainable Solano and, and, and all the great work that you're doing is helping to make that a possibility, a vision, at least. It's a know? vision. Yeah, it's a vision. We have a really great advisory board. They started off as our local food advisory board for this USDA project. And now we're kind of hoping to transform them into more of a Solano local food system alliance where yes. we even bring on like more people from other, just other stakeholders. You know, we've got a lot of county agencies, we've got some farmers, but now we kind of need to bring on like maybe the restaurant owner or mm. somebody in economic development or, you know, we, we kind of maybe a school food service director because they're all going to be affected by this, hopefully one day they'll all play a part. And so, you know, that's one thing that this grant really did help us to do was to get everybody around a table for the first time. And they want to stay on board. You know, we're fortunate. They're, they feel very passionate about it and they want to keep working on it. But we also see like there is now room for some expansion too that needs to happen in order for this whole thing to move forward. So talk about expansion. You guys started out just small in Benicia by yourselves. And then before you know it, boom, the organization turns 20 this year. So Whoa. 20 years ago, Benicia Community Gardens started. Yeah. And then the organization changed their name to Sustainable Solano because they, they started having more countywide initiatives. You know, it started with these, these um, backyard food forests and water saving initiatives. And so somebody at the Solano County Water Agency, I think, found out about it. And they were like, well, hey, we want this in other cities. And then the executive board of Venetian Community Gardens decided, okay, let's, let's rename the organization so that we can better fulfill this larger mission, Yeah, you know, to, to operate at a county level. So. Oh, well, 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 God bless and kudos to forward thinkers. You know? <laughs> yes. I mean, you're creating the, you guys are creating the future. I mean, literally, this place will be different in 10 years because of all the work that you're doing. I hope so. That's, that's cool. Yeah, and it sounds like something that's going to outlive all of us potentially as it keeps going forward and trying to make a food system yeah. that's, that, that helps everyone a lot better. The, there is a saying that Elena, Carolina has brought up, and it, it's like if you, if you think that you're life's work will get done in your lifetime, then you're not thinking big enough, which is pretty it. much where we're at. I would yeah. yeah. So, Stefo, so, Steph, when, I love, I, I'm going to start calling you Stefo. You can call me Stefo. <laughs> Stefo. Um, uh, so, Stefo, what can the community do? I mean, I'm talking about people listening, parents, community leaders. What can we do to help support Sustainable Solano's mission? I think the first thing is just start learning about all these different things that are happening. These economy talks that I referenced earlier are part of this conversation series. It's, it could be films, it could be lectures, it could be discussions mm. um, around the county. And so that's one way for us to 
present some current findings or just, you know, a cool film that we think is relevant. And then we welcome public feedback on that too. We also try to offer what can you do as a community? You know, if you're passionate about this film about great soil, then um, here are some things you can start doing now. You know, research mm -hmm. your local farms. Find out if you if a CSA box works for you that comes from so-and-so, you know, up near Dixon or whatever the case is. If you're passionate about, um, you know, saving water, look into gray water systems that um, our sustainable landscaping program manager heads up. So I would say it's, it's that kind of stuff. You know, start with education, start with exploring, because there's, like you said, it's huge. It's, it's massive. And so I, you can't tackle all of it at once. I would say, you know, find what clicks and see how you can make a difference in your own home, in your own family, you know, in your own neighborhood. There's another really cool program that we're just launching now. And Cassie is the program manager. And so it's called Resilient Neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we're looking for clusters of houses, at least two up to maybe four who would have shared solutions in terms of energy, food, water. So for example, let's say I have a couple neighbors, we all get along. <laughs> and it's kind of a prerequisite. I know, kind of a prerequisite. And so, right. but like- We're talking about sharing energy, not necessarily an extension cord from one yeah. house to another. To <laughs> exactly. But let's say my roof is in prime location for solar. So right. I'm going right. to have solar on my roof and I'm going to share that solar energy with my neighbors. Now, don't ask me how this is going to work like from an engineering standpoint, but are there opportunities for households to cluster together and share those resources and come up with shared solutions to mm. energy, water? Is there a shared garden? I Before we lived in the house I'm in now, we lived in a house which had a connecting backyard with our neighbors. You know, that would be a perfect example of how you could have a garden yet it would serve more than just that one house. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of this idea of community solutions. Mm -hmm. I have to admit that the idea sounds, it sounds foreign, so foreign at first, but that just shows you how far we've come. Yeah. When it comes to, you know, where are the lines drawn and what makes, like I said before, a healthier, more sustainable community. Yeah. And in a way, it's like we're kind of trying to return to the ways of the past. Back when my grandparents were alive and raising their families, they would have been on a farm. They would have had a neighbor probably a half a mile away and they would have shared resources. You know, yeah. they, they, they probably didn't have immediate neighbors because you needed that land, you know, for your own food production. But you relied on neighbors. It makes sense. It does make sense. <laughs> no, I feel like, no, I feel like I want to go plant something. You know, I think, you know, my, my family, we moved from San Jose to Vallejo when I was a young boy. So we lived that commuter life. Father would commute every morning oh, to, the San, San to San Francisco. Jose? No, oh, no, he'd commute every morning to San Francisco. Oh, got it. Uh, in public health, as you might imagine. Mm. Um, but yeah, and then I would commute. You know, when I, I ended up going to a, a school, a high school in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and I would, I'd commute, and so I was heavy on that BART or on the buses if I wasn't mm -hmm. driving with him. But nevertheless, because he grew up in Nigeria and he grew up on farms and did the whole thing, the mm -hmm. whole thing. I mean, he brought a lot of that here. And mm -hmm. so yeah. in our backyard, he had all sorts of stuff, tomatoes and bok choy and trees and all kinds of things that he'd grow. And so I, I grew up washing stuff. I didn't really have a farm, but right. we were washing stuff and seeing the bugs and cutting things and go out there and get me some of this. And it's like, because <laughs> right. he's making it. You know, and it was, um, I, I guess, a, a piece of that kind of classic experience, that old time yeah. experience of, 
of how we as humans, no matter where we were in the world, used to live. Right. It's like traditional food production. I mean, yeah. your father probably had in his mind like a sense of how that little ecosystem in the backyard totally so that food could grow. I don't know. I mean, he may have done, I don't know if you remembered, like, did he do, did he not plant those tomatoes in the same place year after year? Did things move around? You know, certain, I, you know, it's, that's, that's detailed information, but. Yeah. I know that we laid, I know that I, I think in my early, early teens, I think I was like maybe 12, 13, we laid all the sprinkler systems and the water systems in the backyard. And then, um, and he changed him. I mean, now he, he's moved. He doesn't live there anymore, but he still has a garden. He still has uh -huh. trees. He, he recreated it in his new place. Right, in, in good. Costa. And so he's still, he's still very, very heavily involved. It's just a part of his DNA, you know? Mm -hmm. like, this is the mm -hmm. way it's supposed to be. I can right. make, I can, I can farm, or well, not farm. I don't know if it's farm or garden, whichever the correct term is, but I can grow the food in my backyard. Um, right. And I know what he, he will say this though. He will say, he goes, man, that's Solano, you know? things grew well there because oh. where he is in Contra Costa, things don't grow as well ah. in his backyard. So yeah, different kind of climate. Yes. It's yes. It's amazing. amazing. It really is. Amazing. To me, it seems like the same climate, but you know, right. out here it's yeah. Different, a little bit different soil, a little bit different this. Yeah. 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 Right, so right. I feel like I need to go plant something. <laughs> That's right. Go work on that garden. Oh, right. I know I got to Yeah. I got to get my green thumb out and, We've tried it a couple of times, but it, you know, it does require, like I said, it's not easy. No, it's it not easy. Some attention. It requires some time, some expertise, yeah. and obviously there's a lot of it in Solano. And so there really is mm -hmm. no excuse other than to do it. Right. But growing your own food is a good place to start. And that is the shortest commute that that food will have is from the backyard to the kitchen. That's so, right. you know. Yeah, that's, that's right. Backyard to the kitchen is actually better than what? Farm to fork, right? Well, you can be a little activist in your own way just by planting your own garden. Take a stand. Grow something. Right. I love Grow it. something. Excellent. So for our last question, if you could change one thing in the world to make it a healthier and happier place, Stefo, what mm -hmm. would it be? I would get rid of the junk food industry. Ooh. <laughs> Them be fighting words. Let's pretend that they just don't even exist. Okay. Like there's no candy, there's no candy bars, there's no chips, there's no junk. The snack food industry just dives. Just all of a sudden, like it got zapped up by aliens from Mars, right? Now, I'll tell you what you don't need anymore. You don't need hundreds of thousands of acres of corn for high fructose corn syrup or whatever. Right. You know, um... I'm not really sure. You probably don't need as much of that soy either. Mm -hmm. um, you don't need the artificial flavors and colors, which I think are causing a lot of allergies yeah. and all this weird stuff going on. Because candy has to be uh, colorful. That's right. Um, and there's something. To, there's yeah, probably something about the waste too, just from all the packaging. Oh my God! Yeah, let's talk about the packaging. Right. Right. The packaging and the transport of all that. I mean, your trans, yeah, it's one thing to make the junk. Then you got to transport the junk, mm -hmm. right? You got to package the junk. You got to transport it. You got to figure out how to get it into a vending machine mm -hmm. in a public place, which is then using up energy. If that just didn't exist, gosh, what would the world look like? <laughs> I know, right? It really is a domino effect, isn't it? Yeah. When you think That's, about it. That's the thing I could come up with. I mean, that's what came first to my mind. Yeah. Um, and, you know, would it cause people to really cook more? 
I don't know. I, I don't think that's going to really affect the cooking because you're not, we're not coming home and cooking up stuff with red dye and all the preservatives and stuff. But you know what we are doing? Instead of eating something that's cooked, we're eating something that's in a bag. And so this whole snack, yeah. the, whole, the whole snack industry and the idea that you need a snack when really right. you need a meal and you need, you need a, meal. a meal between one and three times a day, but you yeah. don't need a snack snack. Like, and we're snacking a lot. I mean, the bags of chips, yeah. and popcorn. and We don't need a packaged snack. I mean, what my kids sometimes do during the summer, they'll be outside playing and then all of a sudden they're just going to go pick tomatoes and start eating the tomatoes off the plant. <laughs> That's okay. cool. Yeah. So I guess that's a snack. Sure. I'm okay with that kind of snack. Right. Or if you want to go pick an orange off of the orange tree and eat it, great. You can do that. Wow. You know? That's cool. Yeah. If you're if you're really hungry, then okay, come in. I'll I'll like find some bread and some cheese and you know give you that maybe as a snack. But it's the I think what you are getting at is the it's this idea of the packaged yeah snack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with snacks. <laughs> yeah, you make a good point, though, because every tree that I've had in our backyard, we have so much fruit. Right. If it's yeah. apples or uh, we had peaches, apples, and um, lemons, and you have so right. many. You have so right. much. And I remember, because we also had a basketball hoop in our backyard, we'd be playing basketball, and there's, you know, apples. Pick up all those apples before you step on them. And it's just so yeah. much apple. My dad was always making apple pie. It's like you had so much fruit. Right. That one right. tree. Yes, one tree. So now share with your neighbors or figure out how to preserve it. Like start making fruit leather right. or something. Dried apple chips. I, yeah, I mean, I would love to get my hands on like a really good quality dehydrator of some yeah, sort. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. So it, it does really, gosh, it really, the way we treat food does have, it's really a microcosm for the way we do other things as well. I think even just to get people, you know, you're like, how do you, how do you get communities to start? I think even just getting them to start thinking mm -hmm. about all of these things that are in the food system. And then what are our relationships with those things in the food system, be it the snack or the, the garden that we're growing or neighbor is growing or whatever, you know, how do I prepare food? How do I source it? Do I go to the grocery store? You know, I, since I do get CSA boxes, I try to, limit the produce that I then buy at the grocery store, you know, some stuff, you know, herbs and spices. If I want to make the Indian food, okay, I'm going to have to go buy the Indian spices, but then it's like, well, then what am I doing? Am I not really being local? Because yeah, I'm now using spices that are transported here from who knows where on the other side of the world. On the other hand, you know, when you cook internationally based food, you are kind of opening up, an awareness for other cultures and you can foster connection between people over food. So it's, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, yeah. but there's definitely a yin or yang, or maybe even just a, a teasing between extremes. And I think it, while there's the localism, there's also the globalism, there's all sorts of things happening, but I think, and it can be a very messy, complicated issue when you're trying to yeah. drive home a mission. But I think at a very basic level, something that you mentioned earlier is just get involved where you live, grow something in the backyard, nothing closer to your dinner table than backyard to fork right. and start small because every little bit helps. Yeah. You know, like you said, the vision for Sustainable Solano and so many visions, if they're large enough, they should outlive us. And so, right. and so if anything, it's almost a torch you light and then you pass on to someone else to carry. Mm -hmm. Right. Stephanie, it's been an awesome interview. Thank you so much. Tell people where to reach you. 
So if you want to visit the Sustainable Solano website, it's just sustainablesolano.org. And my email is pretty easy, stephanie at sustainablesolano.org. And then in the show notes, I'll put a link to Stephanie's contact information, also some resources that she's mentioned in this episode. She's also a personal chef, and so you might be able to reach her there as well. Stephanie, thank you so much for a wonderful interview. I can't wait to see what Sustainable Solano is doing for our city and the rest of the county. This was a lot of fun, and I'm happy to join you. You have just listened to Inspiration to Live Your Best. Now be sure to pass it on by sharing, commenting, and subscribing at SolanoFit.com. Here's what's next. At least seven to ten minutes kind of counts as you accumulate those minutes. Seven minutes here and there. I, uh, definitely my family, we are pretty good at going for a walk after dinner. And for people who have prediabetes or diabetes, that's actually really recommended because the blood gets absorbed through your muscles that are being activated.